We are starting today a new series through the first half of the book of Joshua. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Joshua. We're going to start in chapter 1. And our text this morning is really just the, the first four, four verses. But I'm going to read all the way through verse 9 because verses 1 through 9 are really an introduction. This paragraph is an introduction to the rest of the book. So you're going to get a a tight-knit summary of what Joshua is about just by going through uh, the first nine verses, and we'll we'll just park on the first four, and it'll take us about three weeks to get through all nine verses. But we'll just start with that, that first section of Scripture there. I'll give you some time to turn there. Joshua chapter 1. And we're going to read one verses, uh, verses one through nine. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. You ready? Okay. Joshua chapter one, verses one through nine. This is the word of the Lord. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses My servant is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving you, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, towards the uh, going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we want to gather now around your word. And I know there are hundreds of people in here and just one guy speaking. But Lord, we believe that you're really speaking by your Holy Spirit to hundreds of people. And it's your word that is powerful. It is your word that is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to pierce through bone and marrow, even to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Your word reads us even more than we read your word. And we want that. In this little 40-minute section of the day, in the middle of a long week, we want your word to read us. We want it to open up areas in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds that maybe are not aligned with you the way that they should be. 
And we want you, as you speak, in the way that you are so good at doing, taking a word, speaking prophetically to one person's life as they sit. We just pray that you would do that to all of us today. And as we step out in faith, longing to know what you have said, not just to the people of Israel, but to your people today, we pray that we would understand. We pray also that we would be persuaded, not by the clever words of a preacher, but by the words of the Holy Spirit and the moving of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that the kingdom of God would for us today become more attractive, more desirable, and worth more sacrifice than maybe it was yesterday. Pray that you would give us a big vision of your promises and stir in us a trust of your faithfulness. And we pray that it would not just be for our own sake and our own benefit, but that Santa Barbara itself would feel the effects of a church that has been lit on fire. And we pray for the fire of the Holy Spirit to fall upon us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, there's a story about a boxer by the name of uh, James Tillis. There's a heavyweight boxer, James Tillis, who is also a cowboy from uh, the great state of Oklahoma, who fought out of Chicago in the early 1980s. He still remembers his first day in the Windy City after his arrival from Tulsa, moving from Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Chicago. He says, I got off the bus with two cardboard suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago and stopped in front of the Sears Tower. I put my suitcases down. I looked at that tower and I said to myself, I am going to conquer Chicago. When I looked down, my suitcases were gone. You ever feel like that type of thing happens to you? Like on a big level, on a small level, it could be something like that. It could just be, metaphorically speaking, that you are so close to your dreams and then it feels like your dream is snatched from you. You're so close to an opportunity that you've been waiting for and longing for and preparing for and waiting for and waiting for and it's right there and you can feel it and taste it and it gets snatched from you. Do you ever feel like you have opportunities to be uh, in particular communities, relationships, jobs? The list goes on, and yet it's just pulled out from under you. Do you ever feel limited by yourself, by your circumstances, frustrated, maybe even disillusioned? Do you t- do you, have you ever tasted what unrealized hopes are like, the bitter taste of unrealized hopes? Do you feel like if you were to describe your life right now, it looks like you just came out with a bang, just approaching the Sears Tower, like, I'm going to take you down. You look down and all of your prized possessions are gone. If you do, you are in good company because there are hundreds of us in this room and I'm pretty sure more than one of us have felt that from time to time. But not just us. I would say that the people of Israel are right now in this place in the book of Joshua experiencing that. Joshua is really a sequel to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The books of Moses. Joshua is the sequel to that. It is, it is kind of taking on the second chapter of the story. And you have to understand 
As Joshua opens, it opens with a strange couple of lines about death and about rivers and about all sorts of stuff that if you don't know what, what uh, Joshua is talking about, you might be a little lost, but it is directly connected to Deuteronomy and to Numbers and to Leviticus, and it is directly connected to some unrealized hopes and dreams. That Israel, like some of us, had dreams that they have been hanging on to for decades, and they feel like it just got snatched out from under them. In the first five books of the Bible, there was one thing that I would say all of the other books centered around. It was this promise, it was this relationship between God and his people. First, Abraham. And there was a promise that God gave them. People call it the Abrahamic covenant. It was a covenant that God entered into with Abraham where he promised him about three different things. He said, I'm going to make you and your barren wife have a lot of kids and you're going to have a whole nation that comes just from you. So you're going to have people. I'm going to put you in a particular place. You're going to have land. And I am going to be there present to rule over those people in that land. So my rule, my blessing. And there were three things you see in Genesis that God was promising Abraham that began to find their fulfillment as those five books of the Bible started to to take on flesh. And all of a sudden, you know, where Abraham was just him and his wife, by the time we get to Moses, there are just thousands of Israelites enslaved to Egypt. And so God through Moses, frees uh, Israel from, from slavery and bondage to Egypt. And so now they're not just a numerous people. There's one part of the promise. But now they, they are under the rule of God. And so the nation of Israel takes on this, this theocratic flavor. God is ruling and he is directing and he is in charge of a whole nation. Now there are a lot of people. There's one part of the promise. Now there is God ruling and reigning and blessing them. There's a second part of the promise. The only thing that has been unrealized up until this point is the land. And they are about to take the land. They've been wandering for 40 years, about to take the land, and the worst possible thing that could happen happens to Israel. In a great time of transition, the book of Joshua opens like this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. How's that that a way to start a a giant book? This guy died, and he's dead. He says it two times. Moses has died, and that's that's how the entire book of Joshua starts. Not only that, but they find themselves staring straight at a river between them and the supposed promised land that God is supposed to bring them into. It's the Jordan River, just right there. And so right, uh, just in a matter of moments, this book opens with Israel struggling with two things, a funeral and a river. Their leader is dead. A raging river lies between them and their God-given yet unfulfilled dreams. You ever feel that way? Like you know God is calling you to something or he has made it clear that he's moving you in a direction and yet you hit this wall and you're like, I, I don't understand. I feel like I'm experiencing a funeral of my dreams and a river in front of me blocking me from getting to where I need to go. This book opens with a picture of limitations, human limitations. I think if we were to examine this personally, look inward at ourselves, we'd have to see in this a mirror 
We're not always as in control of our lives as we would like to think. Israel has been charging. They've been complaining. They've been getting manna from heaven. They've been seeing miracles. Rivers have already parted. They've been delivered from a mega power in Egypt. They've seen a lot of things. And yet over and over they're reminded they're not as in control of their lives as they thought they were. Neither are we. This whole book is not a book about how great Joshua or his friends are. It's not a book about how powerful Israel is and how conquering they are. They were the least of all the surrounding nations. Nor is it a book about how great the church is in the 21st century. This is a book about God. And it is a book that is attempting in the middle of unrealized hopes and broken dreams. It is attempting to lift our eyes to see that God. And it's lifting our eyes to see that God by focusing specifically, as it opens, on his promises. And the author of the book of Joshua is going to write a few things about God's promises. The first one is that his promises are generous. God's promises are generous. I just want you to notice the scope of God's promise in verse 4. We know that uh, God is leading his people into the land, but right here in verse 4, he actually starts to give parameters for that land. He says in verse 4, from the wilderness and this great Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Huge space of land. I just want to show you a picture. I don't know if we have a picture of a map. This might be a little small for you to see, but you can kind of see some of the borders. If you were to look, uh, if you were to look at modern Israel today, and just, just to give you an idea of how much God was pouring out on his people, modern Israel, just to give you a sense of what this is, would just be a sliver. Like, I don't know if you could see this, but this is the Dead Sea. It's a pixelated Dead Sea. And then right above it is a river that goes up to a small body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee. And then down here is another river. If you were to just draw a line straight through all three rivers, that would be the eastern side of Israel. And it would just go over just a little bit over here. Just a little sliver that doesn't make its way too far up the Sea of Galilee. Just about this big. But the area that God promised to Israel all the way back, I I believe it was... um, either in the 1400s or the 1200s BC, was everything that you see in the red lines. Now this is an ancient map, but just to give you an idea again by way of comparison, not saying that this is the way that it is today, but just to give you an idea, uh, if you were to follow the red lines all the way up to where it hits at the north, that's around where Lebanon is, okay? And over on the right side, if you make your way down those dotted uh, lines, you're heading into Syria. And then down here is Jordan. It's all the way over in that area. And then over here, you're starting to creep into Egypt. This is a huge spot of land. If there's anything that we can take from this, it is that God is usually far more generous with his promises than we sometimes expect. We might expect a little bit of blessing, but God always comes, he seems to come like this. They're like, oh yeah, I don't mind a little plot of land, I can put my lean-to and maybe a little hammock and maybe some slack lines up on the palm trees, and God's like, I want to give you the world. God's promises are incredibly generous. Now some of you might be looking at this, seeing a a picture of modern-day Israel, uh, or imagining a picture of modern-day Israel, 
and wondering, you know, I, d- I don't understand the relationship between God and land. We don't talk about land a lot in the New Testament, but it's all over the Old Testament. How do we, how do we understand passages like that? What do they mean today? I want to talk about that just briefly. Uh, this is going to be maybe the most dense part of the sermon, uh, but it's important because everything that we understand about Joshua is, uh, is dependent on our understanding of the land, what it means for us today and what it does not mean, okay? Now, you uh, can understand this uh, a little more simply if you just uh, you understand that the context in which Israel lived in the 1400s before Christ was a theocracy, okay? And a theocracy is simply that a, uh, the, the spiritual leaders, uh, at least in history, are the ones who actually have political power. But it was very different with God because he didn't give that power to political leaders. He himself was king, He was king over Israel. So when we're speaking about Israel being a theocracy, we're speaking about God as king, ruling over his people, not just directing them spiritually, not just for worship, but also directing them, giving them laws, giving them land. And so as a theocracy, God as king, wanting to bless and rule his people, desired a realm for his people to reside in and to be blessed and to be ruled. So in the Old Testament, Land really just speaks about that space that God has allotted his people. Space that's specific, uh, specifically used for the benefits of God's kingdom. If we think of God as a king who has a kingdom, he needs space for his kingdom uh, to expand. And so you have this, this land, the people are in the land, and God's kingdom blessings, his kingdom benefits can be experienced within that space. You say, well, what kind of benefits Uh, come from the kingdom. Well, what you would see all throughout the Old Testament is God speaking about the land uh, in regards to three things. One, it's a place where rest can be. God wants his people to rest. You see this, this theme of rest all throughout the Old Testament that really requires there to be land for his people to experience rest. Now, I'm not, not talking about merely a cat nap, right? Like God is like, I want to bless you by letting you sleep in until 10 o'clock in the morning, you know? Although that would certainly count. Rest in the Old Testament language speaks of something far more. It's this holistic healing. It is this health and wholeness and prosperity of body, mind, and soul. It's healing of the body, it's healing of the mind, it is integration of the soul. We could call it peace of mind, whatever words you want to use to describe it. It is that whole person mentality, it is that person being made complete and whole. That's rest. Uh, in the Old Testament, land was required. Another thing requi- uh, that required land was worship. Something that was different about the Old Testament that is different today is that you couldn't just worship anywhere you wanted in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 12 verse 13 says that there has to be one place, and in that place would later become the temple, but it was one central place. You couldn't just go off into the fields or go into the Sea of Galilee or go deep sea diving, you know, in the Mediterranean and find God there. God wanted his people in a central place. This was Old Testament, and so land was very important to that. The third thing was that his name, he was always in the Old Testament describing his name on things, and he was always describing his name on land. This just speaks of ownership, that it belongs to God. 
That's a really important note to take in your mind, at least, is that the land has always belonged to God, not to any nations, not even to Israel. The land belongs to God, and it is there for him to be worshipped, and it is there for him to pour out his blessing and his rest upon his people. As you get through the Old Testament, you see that all of these things become like this witness to the nations, that this is the God we serve. This is who he is. This is how good he is. This is what he does with his people. And so in that space of land that you saw, the intent was for God's kingdom to flourish right here in this enclosed space as a lighthouse and a beacon to the rest of the world. Now, there were some stipulations to that land. We often, uh, we sometimes skip over them or maybe just don't know that they're there. We think that it's a guaranteed uh, promise without any type of caveats. Now, there, that, there's a truth to that. But there were also covenant stipulations. Obedience. Israel had to obey their God in the land. You see this in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 12, 31, 28, uh, among others. You see that the land was promised. God promised that they would have the land, and he delivered on that promise. However, you see over and over that the retention of that land is based on obedience. If they want to stay in those promises, if they want to experience them to the fullness that God has designed for them to experience, they must walk with him and obey him. And we see the same thing pop up later on in Joshua chapter 1 verse 7 in the text we read. Only be strong and very courageous, comma, being careful to do all according to the law. Later on, he says, don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Over and over, Joshua, the book of Joshua is simply reiterating what we have seen throughout the entire first five books of the Bible. I am going to bless you and pour out a blessing and a promise that's gonna include land, but here's how this is supposed to work out. If you follow me, if you obey me, you will remain in the land. And if you don't, you will be cast out. You may say, well, why? Why all of these stipulations? It doesn't seem like a God of love to offer stipulations or requirements. And the reason is, is because it's not theirs to begin with. Israel was stewards. Just like we're stewards of the things that God has given us, Israel was a steward of the land, but that land was for God and his purpose. It was so that in this little space in the world, pagans, unbelievers, warriors, people groups, tongues and tribes would look at Israel, and this is, this is the hope, and they would see a lifestyle and a culture of liberation. And those outside nations would look in at Israel and say, I want a piece of that. And they would come to the God of Israel and worship at his, at his feet in his temple. And so you see a lot of parameters throughout the Old Testament where God is, is teaching Israel, hey, you, you are tenants of the land, but you're not owners He speaks of a redistribution of the land to the least of these, not accumulation of land, not mere wealth mongering. 
you see a lot of stuff, especially in the minor prophets, of justice in the land for slaves, not exploitation of slaves. You see also in the land protection for minority people groups, not denigration. You see a welcoming, or God's design and hope and purpose, a welcoming of the refugee, a welcoming of the immigrant, a welcoming of the outsider, a welcoming of uh, those who are outside. That is what the land was for. Now at this point, you might say to yourself, God's, you know, okay, God's promises are generous and they're big, but I've heard a lot of promises in my day and people will let you down. And it's only a matter of time before somebody disappoints you. Yet the second thing that we see in Joshua chapter 1 verse 2 is that God's promises are unwavering. God doesn't make promises like your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your your auntie or your uncle or your mom or your dad or your kid. God's promises are unwavering. Look Look at what the book says in verse 2. When he opens by saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. You may say, well, I don't see anything in there about his promises being unwavering. Listen, you have to put yourself in the shoes of Israel, that they are this close to an unfulfilled dream. They almost have it, and everything goes wrong. You have to imagine the stature the shadow that would be cast by a person of the likes of Moses, of whom it was said that he spoke face to face with God unlike any other human on the face of the planet. A guy who who, who spoke to God in a burning bush, who spoke to God on a mountain face to face, who spoke and delivered an entire nation from from a world power, who got water out of rocks, who who caused, uh, by the power of God, food to fall from heaven. So many different things when they were dying because of their sin. It was his intercession that saved their lives. And he dies. You can imagine. Can you imagine the feelings going through a people like that? Like we were almost there. And God took the one person who's going to get us over into Canaan. As if that wasn't bad enough, right in front of them is a raging and rushing river. But right here in Joshua, I think that's why the author states, starts by stating, yep, Moses is dead. But as if to push that minor problem to the side and charge ahead, The author continues in the uh, the voice of God. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. I think it's interesting that God waited until Moses was dead before he told his people to go into the land of Canaan. Three times the author uses this word give or given about the land. The land was a gracious gift of God. It was not dependent on Israel's capacity or merit, just like God's blessings today are not dependent on whether you deserve them or not. It is an act of grace. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 44.3 says, For not by their own sword did they win the land, speaking of Israel, nor did they, their own arms save them, but your right hand in your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. 
God pours out his blessings upon his people and they are generous and they are unwavering, not because we deserve them or we have the capacity to deserve them, but because he delights in you. It's not dependent on our capacity or merit, nor is it undone by our unfortunate circumstances. Whatever your Moses' death, whatever your funeral is, whatever your river is, love the words of one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, who says it this way. He says, Yahweh's fidelity does not hinge on the achievements of men, however gifted they may be, nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. Not even a rushing river, not even Moses' death, not stolen suitcases, not broken dreams, not betrayal, not setbacks, whether minor or large, can deter God's promises from being affected in your life if you simply believe. You might say, this is awesome. God's promises are unwavering. It is an act of grace and extremely generous. I guess I don't need to do anything. I'll just sit and wait for it to happen. Ah, but there's a third and final thing that Joshua uh, alludes to about God's promises and that his promises seem to be interactive. We interact with them. Getting this from verse three. I love this line more than anything. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. I just want you to chew on that for a bit. Think about the promises that God has made to you in the word, maybe prophetically, maybe through another person. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. It's almost, uh, God is almost, uh, as he's speaking, he's starting with this future tense. What you choose to do in the future is going to set in motion what you are experiencing right now. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, future tense, I have already given to you, present tense. You hear that? The way that you choose to enact your life, the way that you view God and the way that your life aligns with his kingdom principles, the way that you act and behave and live determines how much, it seems like what it's saying, determines how much of God's guaranteed promise you will get a taste of. It's not that you, uh, God's promises have failed, it's that you have failed to grab a hold of them. It seems like Joshua is saying this very thing. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, that is the space that I have given you. Step on a lot of spaces then. Right? The land that you step into already belongs to you. He doesn't have to get the promise. He doesn't have to secure a guarantee. The things that God has promised to you and to I already exist in God's reality as being true for you. The only other criteria is for God's people to believe in that and to step into them. I was on Amazon the other day and I was going to buy something. I forget what it was, but I had saved up all of my money. I was going to use my credit card and I noticed Brianna's credit card was already logged into Amazon. So I was like, I'll use that one and I'll pay her back later. And I went to click the button and I remember, uh, I remember it uh, finishing the transaction and down at the bottom, 
of the page, it said uh, zero, as in you owe zero. And I'm all, that's interesting. I don't know how that worked out. And I look above, and in this little corner, I see that on her credit card, she had accumulated some points, and Amazon had applied her points to my purchase. And it was the best day of my life. <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. It is or- it already, that purchase already belongs to me. I just had to apply the points. Now, the analogy kind of fails a little bit because Brianna found out and she, you know, got back. She, she came looking for cash. Um, <laughs> but it's a, a similar thing to the, to, the, to the life of the Christian in the kingdom of God. It's as if those divine points have already, have already been stored for you. You just need to apply them by faith. I believe that God wants to do incredible, monumental, mind-blowing things in the life of his people. I believe that God wants to move dramatically and powerfully in your lives individually and us as a church. I believe that because everywhere I read in the Bible, I see a crazy big God. I see a God that isn't uh, predisposed to do small things. Now, he certainly works in the mundane and the ordinary, but he works extraordinarily in those ordinary things. And he also does incredible acts of his kindness and grace. God moves on behalf of his people. And I believe that sometimes I just wonder if God is on the edge of his seat looking at his church, just like, just like giddy, like a little kid, like, are you going to go for it? Are you going to go for it? Let's do it. And we're just like, I don't know. Maybe tomorrow. I wonder if God is just on the edge of his seat hoping that we take seriously some of the outlandish things that he says to us. Just as he would say to Israel, I want you to have all of this space. They would get a great portion of that space, but never in history would Israel ever accumulate all of that land that you just saw. It seems like God's promises are guaranteed, but the apprehension and the experience of them is directly correlated to how much we believe in him and how much we're willing to step into them. Maybe... His promises are scary. Maybe God is already calling some of you to do something that is outside of your comfort zone. Maybe it's scary. Maybe God's promises are too big for some of us to even comprehend. And maybe, you know, maybe we're not even talking about changing the world. Maybe you just see something in there about evangelism, like you're supposed to share your faith with your neighbor, and you're like, oh, I'm quiet and shy. I don't really want to do that. Or maybe you see something in there about loving the poor and you're like, oh, that's really hard. Or maybe you see something in there about radical integrated community and then you're like, that's, I believe that that could happen, but it would take too much sacrifice. And what if I get hurt? And the list is endless as, as the promises of God are outlined in scripture and as he speaks to us, maybe some of us think that his promises are too big to comprehend and maybe our reaction to that is to box his promises into something a little bit more manageable. You ever do that? When God calls you to step out and to do something that is a little bit more than you can possibly bear in your own human strength and so you you bring it down to something a little more palpable. Well, this, this is a little easier for me to digest. You're ripping yourself off. 
Indeed, the last generation, not, not who God is speaking to now, but the one before that, died without ever having realized the promise that God guaranteed to them. They disobeyed and walked away from God so many times in the book of Numbers that God said, you know what? I'm going to give this land to the generation that comes from you. You guys are just going to wander around the wilderness for 40 days until you all die out because you don't want it. Is God saying that to any of you? I have so much planned for you, but you don't want it. You're too scared or maybe just too comfortable. Maybe trusting in some of the things that he's speaking to you will significantly shake up the life that you know. And God, sitting on the edge of his seat, is looking at you going, if you only knew. Unlike that last generation, the call on us and on all of God's people from Joshua is this line that he keeps saying over and over, be strong and courageous, over and over. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because God will cause, as he says, God will cause these people to inherit the land. God will cause these people to inherit the land. And you might be listening to this promise about land, just trying really hard to apply it to your own life. What does this mean to me? What is, like, is God promising me land? Because like Santa Barbara, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I'll take the APS. <laughs> Whatever. I'll step into that promise right now. now. How do I interpret the promises made to Israel thousands of years ago about land to me right now? You might even be asking other questions. You know how Joshua and the Israelites get their land. And as you read the book of Joshua, maybe it looks to you like this wholesale massacre of a bunch of innocent people. I'm not going to talk about that today, but we will talk about that. I'm not going to tell you when, so you're just going to have to come every Sunday for 13 weeks. We'll get to that. I think there's answers for that for some of you that are struggling with that concept. We're, we're certainly going to get to that. Right now, I want to talk about what the land looks like for us. What are these land promises and what do they mean for us today? What became of the land today? Many evangelicals would probably say that Israel still has divine rights to the land today. They would say, well, when you're reading Joshua, you're reading something about uh, Israel, and that is certainly true. About Israel's land, that is also true. But as we get into the New Testament, Uh, We have to understand that those promises are still about Israel and the land, and it is theirs by divine right. And out of that come a lot of the conflicts and confrontational discussions that you've maybe experienced on television, maybe even in church. A lot of evangelicals would say, Israel still today has divine rights to the land. And it's because of that belief that we see a lot of conflict, at, at least in part. It's very complicated, but that certainly fuels the fire. There is a problem with that position, okay? I want you to wrestle through this on your own. You all have conscien- consciences, Bibles, and intellects, and resources. So I want you to wrestle with this in prayer, but here's what I'm going to give to you my understanding. 
Number one, the land was given to Israel as a theocracy. That theocracy was deeply interwoven with the fact that they would have land. Israel is no longer a theocracy. Israel today is a secular state, okay? Just as America is a secular state, and Russia, and so on and so forth. Land was tied to a specific way of government. Not only that, but Israel's relationship to God is so much bigger than the land. And you see this in the New Testament. We can't avoid the New Testament. As the Bible progresses in Revelation, we see Israel's relationship to God doesn't just disappear. God isn't done with them. You have to read Romans chapter 9 through 11 to see God is not done with Israel. He has a plan for them, and it's a bigger plan than they can even imagine. However, that plan and Israel's relationship to God seems to have transcended the land because we never hear about the land again in the New Testament. And you remember those things that the land was for? Worship, ownership, and presence, the presence of God? We see all of those things still in the New Testament, but it's taking on a different form and flavor. Look at worship. In John chapter four, Jesus is speaking to the woman of Samaria, and she says, well, you know what? You can say what you want, but when, my, you know, when we build, uh, when so-and-so comes, when the Messiah comes, we're gonna worship, and it's gonna be awesome. You guys worship over there, and we worship over here. And you remember what Jesus says to her? She, uh, he says, hey, you worship what you don't understand. The Jews worship what they do understand, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You see what he's saying? There is coming a time where worship will not be confined to a temple or a church building. Worship will take on this form where by the power of the Holy Spirit, God can be worshiped anywhere. Changes worship, transcends the land. He also does this with his sense of, of the sense of ownership. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 through 10, speaking of Abraham, it says, by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and building is a builder is from God. There was a time and a place for that land and a subsequent temple, but there was out in the future what Abraham saw by faith, what there there would be someday a city that has foundations whose designer and building is not from the people of Israel, but from God himself. What about God's presence? Well, in the Old Testament, God's presence dwelt in one place in the temple, But uh, the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 14 says that there will come a time where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see what's happening here? Do you see the expansion happening in the Bible? That the, the, the hope of God in his kingdom from day one was God's people in God's place, the temple, under God's rule. And now it is becoming God's people in every place under God's rule. Israel then had this particular purpose and unique God-given function. They were a vignette of God's greater purpose, if you will. They were like a parable, a, a, a short story telling a bigger story of God's plan for humanity. And the land was there to make a point. 
But now God's unfolding promises seem to transcend geographic boundaries through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you see this all over the New Testament, the Holy Spirit zapping people wherever they happen to be. And he is not blocked or predisposed by geographic boundaries, by ethnicities, by language. He wants to take it over. He wants to take it all. And through now an invisible nation of people made of Jew and Gentile, bound not by ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus. And so God's people today have the same inheritance. It just doesn't look like land. Sorry. Our inheritance today is not an earthly kingdom trying to reach up. Our inheritance today is a heavenly kingdom coming down on us. Our inheritance is the future peeking into the present. This is what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. He was speaking about the glory of the coming age. Our inheritance is so much bigger now than a piece of land. That piece of land was pointing to this. And that glory of the coming age, not bound by geography, ethnicity, or limitations, is waiting for us, and that is our inheritance. Paul says, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose, listen to this, was that we Jews who were, with, uh, were the first to trust in Christ uh, were would bring praise and glory to God. And now, you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the, God, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. There is an inheritance waiting in the kingdom of heaven about to be bestowed upon God's people, and we are promised that. His promises are generous. It's the entire kingdom. His promises are unwavering. The Holy Spirit guarantees it, and his promises are interactive. We have to join in what he is doing. And even though that is in a future age, Paul, in verse 3, seems to say, you might get a little taste of that right now. He says in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has right now blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your inheritance is future, but it's peeking back at you. And the Christian who knows and believes in the promises of God is practicing on a daily basis, meeting face-to-face those promises as they reach back. God will cause his people to inherit the promise. And again, just as it was for Israel, so it is for all of God's people, not so that we can experience these things for our own personal benefits, although that's certainly in there, God cares about each of us personally and individually, but also so that we might be a lifestyle, have a lifestyle and a culture of liberation. 
so that that kingdom peeking back at us and us tasting of it and experiencing it would not just be kept to ourselves, but that it would spill out of the church walls, out of our homes, out of our, our close-knit circles and affect people all around us in our communities, in our job places, in our places of recreation, our families, our loved ones. So the Christian's posture for this is to trust in God. Be strong and courageous, Joshua says. And think about it. If God's word is true, if the things that God calls his people to do, cast out demons, heal the sick, pray for people to recover, blind eyes being opened, deaf ears hearing, those who don't know him being converted on the spot, the baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon people, broken marriages and relationships being restored, children coming back to their uh, to hurt, uh, uh, formerly hurting relationships with their parents and vice versa, the list is endless. If the things that God is calling us to do are true, we can let God be as big as he wants to be in the life of our church. And I dare say that the only thing that gets in the way of that sometimes is our lack of faith. And don't we want God to be as big as he's going to be in our midst? When you look out at the city of Santa Barbara, don't you want him to show himself mighty on your behalf? Aren't you tired of trying to just do this by your own effort? In the book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Jim Cimbala started off in the middle of a, a dry season praying in prayer meetings, praying for God to move And he described it in this way. He was like, man, at that time, what we needed was a fresh wind and a fresh fire. We needed the Holy Spirit to transform the desperate lives of people all around us. And I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. I think I sense that too. Now that I'm 35 and people that are 40 tell me that I'm still young, but people that are 20 tell me that I'm super old, all I know is that the last year just went faster than I would have liked it to. I know that I wasted all of my 20s and I can waste 10 years without batting an eye if I wanted to. And I don't want to waste my 40s and 50s and 60s. And I will waste them if I just go through the motions. And you will too. And are there any people in this building that will cry out with Simbola and with Joshua and with one another, yes, I don't want to waste the next few years of my life in the city that God has me. And I will be grieving if I let my life slip by without seeing God move powerfully on my behalf. Is there anyone in here who's tired, tired, of empty, shallow, shell-filled religiosity? Is there anyone in here who's just tired of going through the motions? Show up at church and take some crackers and sing a couple songs and listen to a sermon and go back and struggle through life for five more days. Don't you want to see the power of God move in your midst? I believe that he's waiting to show us Here in our context, we live in a very peculiar and unique city. 
where people move to this city in order to be blessed by the city, and this city is a blessing. People move here to retire. They move here to experience the beaches. They move here for the foods. People come here on yachts. People come here on cruise ships, over a dozen cruise ships every day. This is a city that people all around the world travel to to be blessed by this city. But it's a city with a bite because it's a hard city to live in for very long. Once you come here, you are, you are euphoric over the things it is able to offer you. But once those things run out, and they will run out, you will experience the struggle of trying to make it work here. You've got to hustle to stay in Santa Barbara. You're too busy to uh, be integrated in, in healthy community and relationships. You're spread out very far. There are many things that get in the way from people living here. And what often happens, what I've seen over the past decade, are people will move to Santa Barbara to be blessed by it, but as soon as Santa Barbara gets hard, they leave for something easier. And I'm also wondering if there are people. Now, if you've got to move to Temecula, it's fine. That happens. But I'm also speaking to those who consider Santa Barbara to be their home. Might you be one of those people who, unlike everyone around the world, does not come to Santa Barbara simply to exploit it, but to be a blessing. That blessing for you might be a sacrifice. It might be costly, financially, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And despite a river being in front of you and dying hopes all around you, is there any kindling of hope inside you that if you were to stay a little bit longer, God might move mightily on your behalf? Israel had a covenant mediator to leave them, uh, lead them forward into the promises. It was Joshua, but we have a better one. We have Jesus Christ, a covenant mediator who brings us to God and in whom all of God's promises for us are yes, Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Because we are in Christ, all of his promises for us are a guaranteed yes. All we have to do is step out into them. Do you believe that God has great plans in store for you and for us? Fair warning. If you believe it enough to step out in faith, he might just take you into uncharted waters. He might do something that you were not expecting. My question to you is, are you willing to go? And if you're not willing to go, if you're scared, if you're discouraged, if you're too comfortable, don't just say that you are just to sound spiritual. Be real with what you're struggling with. Don't try to fake it until you make it. If you're not willing to do anything that God asks you to do right now, start to ask this question more often. Why? Why do I feel this way? Get down into your heart. Let it breathe. Why am I this way? Am I afraid? Am I uncomfortable? Why am I afraid? What am I afraid of? Am I uncomfortable with something? Is there something deep down inside that I've left untouched? What is it? And as soon as you get down deep into that dirt, allow God to touch those areas and heal you where you're at. Because God loves you more than what you're able to do. And his first priority with you is to heal you. But his second priority to set you loose. And this city needs Christians who believe in God, 
that are set loose. Heavenly Father, and I want to ask that you administer to us by your Holy Spirit and trust that you already are. If there's anything that I said that is confusing or distracting, I just pray that you would erase it from our minds and I pray that you would impress upon our minds and our hearts the word and will of God. Holy Spirit, you have this uncanny ability to speak to people wherever they're at. Just driving a car and getting groceries and playing basketball, sitting in a church, gathering. And I just want to pray that you would do that today. We believe that you still speak. And we want to ask that as we worship through song, you begin to speak to us. What do you have in store for us, God, as a church? And where are we dragging our feet or closing our eyes? We ask that you would heal us and that you would liberate us to be a culture of freedom and liberation in this city and to everyone that we meet. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.